Eugene. You are a professor of the of modern Middle Eastern history at Oxford University, um, and the director of the Middle East Center. And uh, you've written many books. Some of them include um, the Arabs: A History and the Fall of the Ottomans. So I will post links to those as well in the chat box so people can check them out. And um, I was talking to my dad, Afif Safiye, about this talk, and he had a lovely little anecdote of the two of you that I thought was so cute that I wanted to share, that when he was a visiting scholar at Harvard, um, I believe you were doing your master's there, and he said that you used to come and join him in his office, and you, you two used to have lots of chats um, and try to put the world to rights in his office. So um, that was adorable, I thought. So I'm going to hand over to you now because we're really excited to hear what you have in store for us. Over to you, Eugene. Well, Diana, thank you so much. And it's a pleasure to be with the Balfour Project. I have so much admiration for the way in which the Balfour Project has served the information sharing and knowledge deepening around an issue that continues to you know, implicate Britain even as its influence in Palestinian affairs seems to, to wane further and further. And it's, it's a pleasure to be in contact with the, the Salfia family. I remember meetings with Afif when we were in Harvard together with great pleasure. And I learned so much from him then, as I have through his years of serving Palestine as ambassador to the UK and to, to Crystal, who always seemed to be the measure of balance that Afif always lacked. Uh, I see your names are on the list. Great to see you both. And, and let's start. It's a pleasure to be discussing these ideas with you. I actually do have something of a new idea on what is very familiar, uh, very established history. So while I'm about to tell you things that you already know a great deal about, I'm hoping that in my interpretation, you'll see that there's a new spin that might even add to our understanding of the British experience of the Mandate Palestine. So over a century after Lord Balfour made his declaration there is little agreement about what Lloyd George's foreign secretary or subsequent governments intended to do with Palestine. It should not be such a mystery. Britain wanted Palestine. It wanted Palestine for its own empire for simple geostrategic reasons born of the First World War. Towards that end, the British government sought to exploit the Zionist movement, not to create a Jewish state, but to partner with Zionist settlers in managing Palestine over the predictable opposition of the Palestinian Arab majority. If one were to compare Palestine to the French mandate in Lebanon, then I argue the Zionists were the Maronites of British Palestine, a compact minority community that would openly advocate a British mandate at the Paris Peace Conference and cooperate with the British in governing the territory. This wish to draw Palestine into the British Empire was entirely new in 1917. Before World War I, Britain had no declared interest in the Ottoman territory of Palestine. This disinterested position would continue well after the outbreak of the war. The de Bunsen Committee, convened in April and May of 1915 to consider British imperial interests in the Ottoman territories in Asia, practically disavowed any claim to Palestine, aside from securing a 
a rail terminal in Haifa linking Mesopotamia to the Mediterranean. Palestine must be recognized as a country whose destiny must be the subject of special negotiations in which both belligerents and neutrals are alike interested, the Demunson Committee report concluded. These principles guided British partition diplomacy when Sir Mark Sykes concluded an agreement with Charles-François-Georges Picot between April and October of 1916. Palestine was to be internationalized under joint Russian, French, and British administrations, with Britain securing that enclave in Haifa for its Mediterranean port, that outlet from northern Iraq to the Mediterranean still playing on British imperial ambitions, even at the time of Sykes-Picot. Between October of 1916 and November of 1917, Britain's position changed dramatically from one of disinterest to a determination to secure Palestine for its own imperial control. We can pinpoint the moment when Palestine takes interest to the British Empire as precisely as that. One driver of the change was the Sinai campaign. In the opening years of the war, the British had defended the Suez Canal from its western banks. There were no wells or fresh water supply in Sinai, so troops could not be posted to the Sinai Peninsula. This had allowed the Ottomans free reign in Sinai and to mount two attacks in February 1915 and in August 1916 on the Suez Canal zone. Modern artillery could strike ships in the canal from five or more miles away with high accuracy. From their lines in southern Palestine, with water from perennial wells, a hostile power could threaten shipping transiting the Suez Canal at will. So that was the lesson of World War I. To drive the Ottomans out of the Sinai Peninsula, the British fought a slow campaign through the remainder of 1916 and into the early months of 1917, laying a railway line for supplies and war material, and a pipeline to provide water for troops and their animals. They faced well-entrenched Ottoman forces in Gaza, who defended their territory against determined British assaults in March and April 1917. Of course, the first and second battles of Gaza ended in British defeat, which made the British yet more aware of the danger posed by a hostile power in Southern Palestine. It was this wartime experience that changed Britain's position from one of disinterest to seeking dominion over Palestine. It wasn't until the Battle of Beersheba on 31 October 1917 that British forces broke through Ottoman lines in Southern Palestine and began their rapid advance towards Jerusalem, which surrendered in December of that year. Three days after the breakthrough at Beersheba, Balfour pledged the Britain government's best effort to establish a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. And I argue the timing is not coincidental. It is clear that wartime experience had driven Britain's new interest in securing Palestine for its empire. We can pinpoint that newfound interest to the period between the Sykes-Picot Accord in October of 1916 and the Battle of Beersheba in October of 1917. Yet, in this 
fast-moving change of imperial policy, there is another element that requires explanation, the decision to back Zionist ambitions in Palestine. The British government had no interest in Zionism before World War I. In 1913, the Foreign Office's permanent undersecretary, Sir Arthur Nicholson, refused to receive Nahum Sokolov, an executive board member of the World Zionist Organization. He left his secretary to receive Sokolov. And after the secretary briefed Nicholson on the meeting, Nicholson replied, in any case, we'd better not intervene to support the Zionist movement. The implantation of Jews is a question of internal administration on which there is a great deal of division in Turkey. British uh, officials were no more interested in Zionism when Sokolov tried to secure a second appointment in July of 1914. It is not really necessary that anyone's time should be wasted in this way, a Foreign Office memo noted, and the second visit simply never took place. That was July 1914. So it's fair to say that before World War I, the British had no interest in the Zionist movement. This is not surprising. Zionism was dismissed as a utopian movement with a very limited following in Britain in 1914. Out of a total British Jewish community of some 300,000, there were no more than 8,000 members of Zionist organizations in the United Kingdom. So there was little reason to quote unquote, waste time over a marginal political movement that attracted only an idealistic fringe of the Jewish community. And British society was highly anti-Semitic by today's standards. One simply didn't expect British officials to advocate for Jewish movements. It wasn't until 1917 that Britain saw a strategic interest in the Zionist movement and their interest in the movement began to change. The Russian revolution in 1917 placed Russian commitment to the great war effort in question. Many in Britain believe Jews and the provisional government of Alexander Kerensky might encourage the Russian military commitment to the war if they saw an Entente victory advancing Zionist goals in Palestine. Others believed American Jews would influence Woodrow Wilson to really engage in the war, tipping the balance of the war in the Entente's favor. For the same reason, America was slow to enter the war. They only declared war on Germany in April of 1917. And its population was unenthusiastic about what they saw as a European conflict. A pro-Zionist policy might encourage influential Jews advising the White House to accelerate America's engagement. As Tom Segev comments in his book, One Palestine Complete, this was Zionism turning a well-worn anti-Semitic trope about a Jewish international that controlled global politics and world finance to the advantage of the Zionist movement. In the endless total warfare of World War I, Lloyd George and his government were open to any alliance that might help to end the war with an Entente victory. And so Lloyd George and his government courted the Zionist movement. There was another reason for Britain to seek a partnership with Zionism in 1917. Just one year earlier, Mark Sykes had agreed a distribution of Ottoman Arab territory with George Picot. France would hardly be sympathetic to new British claims to Palestine 
after both France and Russia had made clear their own interests in the Holy Lands and had agreed to a compromise that left Palestine under an international control. The British needed a third party to take responsibility for such a dramatic shift in partition diplomacy. By supporting the Zionist movement, Britain could stake its claim to Palestine, not in terms of its own selfish imperial interests, but as a matter of historic social justice, resolving Europe's Jewish question through the return of the Jewish people to their biblical homeland. It was in that spirit that Lord, uh, that Lord Balfour addressed his fateful letter to Lord Rothschild, promising Britain's best efforts towards that end. It looked like Britain was promising Palestine to the Zionists, when in fact, Lloyd George's government was using the Zionist movement to secure Palestine for their own empire. And so Balfour made his fateful declaration, committing the British government to exerting their best endeavors to facilitate the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. Note, a national home, not a state. The Jewish people, not the Zionists. While many critics have focused on the fact that the Balfour Declaration does not refer to the Palestinians by name, but just to, quote, existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, I think the Balfour Declaration is equally non-committal to Jewish and Arab national identity. It's non-committal to Jewish national identity as it's non-committal to Arab national identity. The declaration is all about civil and religious rights rather than national rights. The Balfour Declaration, in other words, is not a commitment to the establishment of a Jewish state. I see it rather as the establishment of a compact minority community in Palestine designed to facilitate British rule of a new colonial acquisition. Totally dependent on the British for their position in Palestine, the Zionists would be reliable partners in managing the mandate against the predictable opposition of the Palestinian Arab majority. Now, Britain was in no doubt of Palestinian opposition to its plans. They had enough operatives on the ground from December 1917 onwards after Allenby's occupation of Jerusalem to have reliable intelligence on the political views of the local population. And if they had bothered to read the report filed by the American Commission of Inquiry known as the King Crane Commission in the summer of 1919, footnote, they probably never did read that report. As we know, it was deliberately shelved and not published until well after the Paris Peace Conference. So quite possibly the British never read the King Crane Report before the mandate for Palestine was drawn up. But if they had bothered to read the report, they would have had all the data to conclude that their Balfour promise was a non-starter. The King Crane Report noted that the non-Jewish population of Palestine, nearly nine-tenths of the whole, are emphatically against the entire Zionist program. The tables show that there was no one thing upon which the population of Palestine were more agreed than upon this. The report also noted that no British officer consulted by the commissioners believed that the Zionist program could be carried out except by force of arms. So the British knew how strongly Palestinians opposed their plans. Paradoxically, faced with such opposition, the British seem to have been 
only more convinced of the benefits of establishing a loyal ally through the Zionist settler community. Jewish settlers were Europeans, and so culturally closer to the British than the Palestinian Arabs, though, of course, British officials continued to orientalize the Jews and to view them as lower in the social Darwinian scale than the British themselves. So Europeans, but not quite Europeans. A compact Jewish minority, viewed with hostility by the majority population, would be entirely dependent on the British to protect their position. Such dependence made them reliable. The British could trust the Zionist settlers to partner in the management of Palestine because the mandate made Zionist settlement possible and protected the settler community from the hostile natives. Dependent and reliable was the holy grail of empire. The French resorted to minority policies more readily than the British. The Maronites in Mount Lebanon were one such minority community who actively lobbied for a French mandate over their country. The French tried to foster such ties and such dependence with the Alawite and Druze communities in Syria, offering them many states for self-government under the French mandate in Syria. The British, for their part, had turned to the sons of Sharif Hussein of Mecca in a policy known as the Sharifian solution, placing Hashemite Sharifs on the throne of Transjordan and Iraq. Foreigners in their own kingdoms with no popular support base or financial independence, Britain could be confident that Emir Abdullah in Transjordan and King Faisal in Iraq would be dependent and thus reliable partners in running those states. Britain had no Sharifian solution for Palestine. Instead, the Zionist settler community fulfilled that role. However, the Zionists would only be dependent and reliable so long as they remained a minority. Were they to achieve majority in Palestine, they would sue for independence. Britain had no doubt of the nationalist nature of the Zionist movement. It was as much to remind the Yishuv of the limits of Britain's commitment as it was to calm Palestinian Arab antagonism that Winston Churchill issued his 1922 white paper. Famously, Churchill ruled out a Palestine, quote, as Jewish as England is English. He ruled out, quote, the disappearance or the subordination of the Arabic population, language, or culture in Palestine. He stressed that the terms of the Balfour Declaration do not contemplate that Palestine as a whole should be converted into a Jewish national home, but that such a home should be founded in Palestine. What Churchill was saying was that the Jewish community of Palestine should remain a compact minority community, and within those limits, they could look to Britain to advance the Jewish national home project. Of course, Britain never reached an equilibrium point in advancing the Jewish national home and preserving the peace in Palestine. After a wave of riots in 1929, the British organized a series of inquiries and issued a series of white papers against the background of spiking Jewish immigration following the Nazi seizure of power between 1931 and 1933 and the passage of the Nuremberg anti-Semitic laws in 1935. From an average of around 5,000 immigrants per year between 1930 and 1931, the numbers of Jewish immigrants begin to rise precipitously 
to 9,600, nearly double in 1932, to 30,000 in 1933, to 42,000 in 1934, and peaking at nearly 62,000 in 1935. So when I see a spike in immigration, we're talking numbers well above and beyond the absorptive capacity and provoking a genuine crisis in Palestine. By 1936, the Yeshuv had grown from less than 10% to over 30% of the population of Palestine, with no end in sight. Jewish immigration and land purchase compounded the economic impact of the Great Depression to raise misery and anxiety in Arab-Palestinian population. In 1936, the Palestinians broke out in full revolt against both the British mandate and the Jewish community fostered by the mandate. The British secured a pause in the first phase of the Arab revolt to dispatch yet another commission of inquiry. However, the Peel Commission was like no other commission of inquiry. And when they reported in August of 1937, they basically declared the mandate a failure. An irrepressible conflict has arisen between two national communities within the narrow bounds of one small country, they wrote. About 1 million Arabs are in strife, open or latent, with some 400,000 Jews. There is no common ground between them. Their cultural and social life, their ways of thought and conduct are as incompatible as their national aspirations. These last, i.e. national aspirations, are the greatest bar to peace. In other words, written for the first time in the 20 years since the Balfour Declaration, acknowledged that their mandate had set off a conflict between rival and incompatible nationalism, Palestinian Arab and Zionist. According to the Peel Commission, this situation could be resolved only by the termination of the mandate and partition of the territory of Palestine into Jewish and Arab states governed by treaty relations with Britain, quote, in accordance with the precedent set in Iraq. Okay, let that be your first warning signal about how, quote, unquote, independent Britain intended the Jewish and Arab states to be. The 1930 Anglo-Iraqi Treaty preserved British preeminence in foreign relations and military affairs in ways that simply restructured the colonial relationship, a sort of empire by treaty. I would argue that the Peel Commission's recommendations were about restructuring the colonial relationship in Palestine, but not to end it. Start with the 1937 partition map. And bear with me while I share a copy of that map with you. The Peel Commission allocated roughly one third of Mandate Palestine to the Jewish state, stretching from the Galilee Panhandle, south to include Safad, Tiberias, and Nazareth, and then heading west above Besan to include the whole of the coastal region stretching from that port enclave around Acre and Haifa down to Tel Aviv, with the territory continuing to the south of Tel Aviv but an enclave internationalized to remain under British control, linking Jaffa to Jerusalem. So this area within the red line 
was a territory recommended by the Peel Commission to constitute the Arab state, I'm sorry, the Jewish state uh, in Palestine. Now, two things are obvious when you look at the map. The British had concentrated the key ports and economic centers and even the best agricultural land and placed them in the hands of their Zionist partners as part of the Jewish state. More significantly, a country so small, and this is one third of the small state of Mandate Palestine, a country so small would be forever more dependent on British protection against Arab neighbors in Lebanon, in Syria, and of course, the unreconciled Palestinian Arabs surrounding the Jewish state. So rather than conceding statehood to the Zionists, the British were reorganizing the economic center of gravity in Palestine and placing that territory under their dependent and reliable Zionist partners. This reversion to dependent and reliable partners is equally apparent in the Peel Commission's plans for Arab Palestine. The remaining two thirds of Palestine was to be united with Transjordan under Amir Abdullah's rule and the mandate for Transjordan replaced with a treaty of so-called independence. So cancel the Palestine mandate, terminate it, declare the termination of the Transjordan mandate, create a treaty with the new independent Jewish state, create a treaty with the independent state of Transjordan that now integrates two thirds of Palestine. In other words, the British were at long last applying the Sharifian solution to Palestine and placing that troubled land under the control of a dependent and reliable ruler in the form of Amir Abdullah. Abdullah, of course, is the only Arab ruler who accepts the recommendations of the Peel Commission. For Abdullah, this not only gave him a sizable expansion of the territory of Transjordan, but gave him a wretched strip of Mediterranean coastline with um, really only the port of, of Gaza to give them uh, the infrastructure for access to Mediterranean trade. I will end with the map there and come back to you. The telling detail uh, of the Peel Commission plan is that um, it's not a call for Jewish or Arab independence. It was instead an effort to restructure the colonial re relationship along the tried and true methods of Iraq, to shut down a dysfunctional mandate and restructure along the lines of empire by treaty. Needless to say, the Palestinian rejection of the Peel Report resulted in two further years of intense insurgency, forcing the British to deploy 25,000 soldiers and policemen in a bid to suppress the Arab revolt. To restore the peace, the British issued a final white paper in 1939 that laid partition to rest. The 1939 white paper called for a limit to Jewish immigration to 15,000 per annum for five years, or a total of 75,000 new immigrants. This would bring the Jewish population of Palestine to 35% of the total population of Palestine. After five years, there would be no further Jewish immigration without the consent of the majority, and no one was under any illusion about the majority's views on the matter. 
1949, Palestine would gain independence. Again, presumably the sort of partial independence the British had already conferred on Iraq in the 1930 treaty. And now on Egypt by the 1936 Anglo-Egyptian treaty. So you had two so-called independent Arab states bound by treaty relations to Britain that were nothing more than a restructuring of the colonial relationship. So one can imagine Palestinian independence under the 1939 white paper, which would come by treaty agreement in 1949, would be just a remanaging of the colonial situation as empire by treaty. The telling detail in the 1939 white paper is the precision with which Britain treated Jewish immigration. 15,000 year, per year, taking the Jewish population to 35%, full stop. By this policy, the Yishuv would remain a compact minority forever dependent on British protection in hostile surroundings. Had the British allowed the Jewish community to surpass the 50% mark, become a majority population Palestine, they almost certainly would face a Jewish nationalist bid to drive Britain from Palestine, just as they'd faced from the Palestinian Arab population. As a compact minority, as the Maronites of Palestine, the Yishuv would reinforce Britain's imperial position in Palestine against the demands of the Arab majority. As a majority, the Yishuv would mount their own bid for independence. Which is, of course, what happened. The Yishuv, the Zionist executive in Palestine, led by David Ben-Gurion, rejected the 1939 white paper. But with war against Nazi Germany brewing, Ben-Gurion famously vowed to fight the war against the Nazis as if there were no white paper and to fight the white paper as if there were no war. Other more radical members of the Yishuv openly declared war on Britain, launching a Jewish revolt that would prove fatal to Britain's position in Palestine. As the Irgun announced, in their declaration of war in January 1944, there is no longer any armistice between the Jewish people and the British administration in Eretz Israel. Our people is at war with this regime, war to the end. The Jewish revolt of 1944 to 47 proved fatal to the British mandate, in which the targeted assassination of officials, the attacks on infrastructure, the bombings of police stations, the 1940, 1946 attack on the British Mandate Secretariat in the King David Hotel were all terrible milestones. The growing pressure on immigration limits as shiploads of illegal refugees, mostly survivors of the Holocaust, made their way to the coasts of Palestine as the Yeshuv surged towards a critical demographic mass to assert their nationalist aspirations compounded Britain's untenable position. But in my view, what condemned the British position in Palestine once and for all was the collapse of Yishuv's support for British rule in Palestine. In partnership with a compact Jewish minority, the British could hope to hold Palestine against the nationalist opposition of the country's Arab majority against the rival and incompatible nationalisms their mandate unleashed, Britain was left with no choice but to hand the Palestine mandate over to the United Nations and withdraw. So to conclude, 
Britain's goal in Palestine was always to retain the territory as part of its empire, an empire it had always imagined would last for generations. And in a footnote, I remember in interviewing veterans of the Palestine police force, most of whom joined in the 1940s, during the time of the Jewish revolt. They almost all claimed that they were motivated to join the Palestine police to do their bit for the empire. So even when, in our view, that empire was doomed, young Britons were really quite committed to sustaining an empire they believed still had generations to last. The Jewish community in Palestine was an essential partner in securing and retaining Palestine, but only as a compact minority community. Britain never anticipated giving Palestine over to the Yishuv, and their policies supported the Yishuv only within their limits of their usefulness as partners to the imperial project. The fatal mistake the British made was believing they could manage the rival and incompatible nationalisms they set off in Palestine. As a population of the Yishuv reached a critical mass, the British, in fact, had become irrelevant. I'll bring my talk to a close at this point. I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for that. I found that really interesting. It was really nice to get a concise um, explanation about how all the agreements and commissions linked to each other. Um, so I just found that really, really interesting. I don't think I knew that they there wasn't wide awareness about the Crane Commission, but it makes sense because <laughs> of what followed. Um, so we've got a couple of questions already. Uh, if you've got any questions for Eugene, please pop them in the chat box. And I'm going to try to get through as many of them as I can, but I can tell you already we've had a few. So um, I'm going to try to batch them for ease and to get through as many subjects as possible. So the first one is about religion um, and how that might have influenced Balfour, Lloyd George. So um, we've got from Philip Francis, Balfour was not religious, but Lloyd George was a devout Methodist and a Bible-based Baptist when he was at home in Wales. His pastor in Wales emigrated to America and was involved with the founding of the modern day Southern Baptist movement, who are fundamentalist Christians in the United States today. Mm -hmm. It seemed to me that there are strong parallels with Lloyd George's position, position then and the position of those who support Trump today and the support of American Christians for the state of Israel. Is this a topic that you've looked into or have any insight into? And then to add to that, um, Vincent Fien, our chair of the Balfour Project, has asked, um, well, he says, thank you, Eugene, and I second that. Thank you very much. What weight do you attach to the inv individual attitudes, for example, of Balfour and Lloyd George as um, restitutionists and the power of the Old Testament in policy thinking? So it's quite a thank lot you. for you. <laughs> they, well, they're, they're, they're questions that, that fit rather nicely together because there is a certain amount of Bible thumping that goes with the way the British frame their claim. And I cannot read the minds or hearts of Lloyd George or Balfour or others in the cabinet. I know that they are all on record saying things that would set off alarm bells for anti-Semitism uh, by today's measure. And so I always take with a grain of salt their commitment to do you know, well by the Jewish people. Um, this doesn't mean that they were openly hostile to the idea of the Jewish uh, settlement movement in Palestine, or that they couldn't see that there would be something kind of mystical and great about the idea of the restoration of the Jewish people to their biblical homeland. That might have played to romantic ideals that Balfour was himself quite vulnerable to. 
But none of it would have happened if it hadn't advanced the interest of the British Empire. And that's where I think the argument always, in a sense, falls into mistaken territory. I, I've given this sort of these some of these arguments uh, before and had people just push back saying, no, you know, they were really won over. Uh, Heim Weizmann, you know, his invention of, of, of acetate and what that did for allowing artillery shells to be constructed in the First World War, he was able to get access and persuade you know, Balfour and, and Lloyd George of the great idea. You know, I'm sure that Weizmann was very persuasive. But you know, that's why I quoted in the beginning the, the way in which Sokolov, who was himself a very charming, charismatic spokesperson for the Zionist movement, simply couldn't get his foot through the door in the foreign office up until 1914. In other words, Zionism really is only worth thumping your Bible in favor of when it's going to advance the interest of the British Empire. And I think we can really trace it back to that critical moment between when Sykes-Picot is concluded and when the British break through, you know, into southern Palestine, they suddenly saw that they needed Palestine to secure the Suez Canal as the vital waterway for their empire. And having Palestine in World War I in hostile hands really forced a rethink that was entirely new. And suddenly the Zionist movement, never of interest to politicians of Britain before, had a kind of critical interest or importance to it that meant it was arguably a British imperial interest to give it a new serious second thought. As far as how that links to Lloyd George's pastor, his travels to America and the enthusiasm for Christian Zionism going back to a century ago, I, I don't know a great deal beyond what I read in magazines and newspapers about the support of Christian Zionism. And I, I've always been rather uh, cautious about how kind that support was to the Jewish people. It always seemed rather instrumental to me that Christian Zionists wanted to bring on the end of time and at a time which condemns Jews to eternal damnation because they did not accept Jesus's message. So, you know, in a pragmatic way, allies perhaps, but not people maybe you want to invite round for a Seder, you know. So, but, and, and what, what drives Trump was always a mystery to me. Uh, happily, we don't talk about him now as much as we used to. And, uh, and his ideas seem to be less influential in the way we talk about things in Palestine. Thank you. The questions are coming in thick and fast. So, um, okay. and um, again, we've got some, I'm gonna read you a question from Magan Singodia and um, Harry Hagopian, sorry name pronunciation is not my strong point as you can tell beautiful <laughs> thank you um so from magan if the if the british had granted the palestinian independence in 1936 and then in 47 have the palestinians any grounds for claiming being an independent state so obviously very much on the mind um after our conference last week about the rule of law and from harry hagopian many thanks for a wonderful overview of this historical chapter if I fast forward yesterday and look at today with the UK poo-pooing the ICC investigation and refusing to recognize Palestine as a state under international law, what are the UK's mandatory designs today, if any? Oh, goodness. It's, it's such a good question. Um, so UK mandatory design today. I mean, this is, in a sense, I left you at the end of my talk with uh, Britain that already by 1947 had been reduced to irrelevance and handed over to the United Nations. 
if they were irrelevant, even while they had troops on the ground in Palestine. Imagine how much less relevant they are in an age where Britain's concerns to try and make good the economic potential that drives this government's Brexit policies by not doing anything that gets in the way of trade relations. And I'm afraid that when it comes to justice for Palestine, I, I really do think that Britain's moral obligations will be sacrificed on the altar of post-Brexit trade. I, I, I could be wrong. Um, I, I wish this country nothing but success as it moves forward. And I, I like my adopted homeland, but on this one policy, I'm not overwhelmingly hopeful. So that's on the, um, the, the second question. The first one again, I'm sorry, I should have made a note. Bear with me a second. Yeah, you probably um, moved it to the... So from Magan, if the British had granted the Palestinians independence right. in 36 and then 47, have the Palestinians any grounds for claiming being an independent state? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an international lawyer. And so I can't recite for you the legal reasons why the Palestinians would have a claim. But, you know, even in um, terms of the Paris Peace Conference and the King Crane Commission and their investigations and whatnot, you know, what, what drove the um, claim to statehood was self-determination. The imposition of a mandate against the wishes of the majority population was a violation of self-determination. So in, I think, certainly in 1919 or 1920 terms, the legal position of Palestinian claims to independence were stronger than Britain's right to impose its colonial situation on the Palestinian people against their wishes. But it was still an imperial age. Britain was an important power in the League of Nations. The United States was not a member of the League of Nations. And, you know, it was more concerned with what the French were going to sanction than really what the rest of the international community, let alone the Arab people of Palestine, would sanction. I think that the Palestinians have had a legitimate claim to independence um, right through, and they've never had the force to impose that will, and, and they, they lost it by losing a war in 1947-48, a civil war, and in subsequent uh, you know, Arab-Israeli conflicts in which the Palestinians lost territory by dint of conquest, but I don't think they've ever lost their, lost their moral claim to, to statehood. And, and it's been a claim recognized by more countries in the world today than those that have not. Shame on Britain for not being one of them. Well, if, um, if that is a question that any of our audience are interested in exploring further, we have all the recordings from our conference last week, which touched on these topics extensively and from some amazing experts in the field. So um, I have posted the link to the recordings in the chat box. We also had a statement come out um, to conclude the conference that is also available on the website and um, we've also got a really interesting letter from uh, Crispin Blunt MP to the Prime Minister so um, about the um, ICC so do check those out on the website like I said all the links are in the chat box um, right so another question for you Eugene um, this is from Samir Shawa can you please explain why Lord Balfour couldn't wait for his army to occupy all of Palestine? Allenby entered Jerusalem five weeks after the ominous declaration. Mm -hmm. The mandate was given to Britain years later. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I mean, I think that the British government as a whole was looking at a rapidly evolving situation where the forces they were marshalling under Allenby and the Egyptian expeditionary force were in a position to break through Ottoman lines. And while it's it's true, uh, it would take until December before the British had entered Jerusalem. You know, it was uh, three days after the British had broken through Ottoman lines and were beginning their advance from Bir Sabah and Gaza and moving up the coastline towards uh, Jerusalem. So they were looking at a territory that was increasingly coming under British military occupation. I think the very fact that Palestine was coming under a British military occupation was also a game changer in Britain's conception of their rights and claims to Palestine. You know, all very well for Russia and France to be saying this has got to be internationalized. For the British, there was a sense that their claim was now higher for the two failed attempts on Gaza with high British casualties, and then the numbers that they'd suffered in finally breaking through and in conquering Palestine. So, you know, I I think it's not a question of, you know, um, when should Balfour have made his, his claim Once they'd broken through Ottoman lines and were advancing into Palestine, Britain wanted to really start to stake its claim to Palestine to change the formula that Sykes-Picot had put down between Britain and France, in particular Russia now a little more marginal because of the Bolshevik seizure of power and then moving into a position of not taking interest in extraterritorial empire. So here, I think that's, that's part of why they were so hasty And even in that, remember, they may be pushing the Ottomans back in Palestine, but there was no reason in December of 1917 to anticipate that the British and French would would defeat Germany or win the First World War. So in a sense, they're still in a terrain of trying to advance partition diplomacy under great uncertainty of whether any of that partition diplomacy would be acted on. If Britain and France lost the war, if Germany and its allies won, then the Ottoman Empire would be talking about getting back Cyprus from the British and, you know, claiming islands back from Greece and a whole different discussion would have been going on. You just couldn't know what the outcome would be. So think of it really not as, you know, Balfour imposing Britain's will on anyone other than the French and, uh, and trying to rewrite the partition diplomacy to firmly stake their claim on Palestine and to do so in the name of the Zionist movement so that the French couldn't argue that the British were you know, driven by their own imperial interests. That would have complicated Anglo-French relations. Um, I have an interesting follow-on question then from Brian Chapman. I understand the reason behind Britain looking to get Jewish support in 1917, some of the things you just touched on, but once the war was won in 1918, why didn't they just backtrack at that point? Well, this is where my argument that the Zionists become the Maronites of the British in Palestine is I think the new takeaway from my talk. And this idea, to me, the reason I chose the milestones I did is because they really help us frame the limits that Britain wanted to put on the Zionist national home project to advance their imperial interests in governing Palestine. So, you know, I think each of those milestones, 22, Churchill, you know, not a Palestine as Jewish as England is English. It's already setting out. We're looking at a kind of minority situation here. Partition is always taken as a moment where the British show their hand. Look, they're giving Palestine to create a Jewish state. But really, I mean, 
the kind of independence treaty that Britain was conceding in the 1930s, and look at the Iraqi and the Egyptian documents, is really just a rebrokering of the colonial situation. And then you come to 39, where they abandon partition, and they limit Jewish immigration in such precise ways to keep them 35%. You know, what a convenient compact minority, totally dependent on Britain, surrounded by enemies, hostile powers, you know, and in control of key territory and economic infrastructure. That was the essential part for making the Palestine mandate work. And that's why the British were willing to encourage the expansion of the Jewish community up to that 35% marker. But the 1939 white paper to me really, you know, clinches my argument for the the Zionists as the, Man the, the Maronites of Palestine. And it, it's when they revolt against the British that the whole British project in Palestine collapses because you don't have your dependent and reliable partner community anymore. They've surged towards a critical mass. They're becoming a majority and they're gonna bid for their own independence just as the British always feared they were if they were allowed to go beyond 35%. So, I, I mean, I hope that argument makes sense. It's funny, but it's not the way the story is written now. And I think it should be. I think it, by situating Palestine within its British imperial context, we can so better understand how it really was Britain trying to manipulate the Zionist movement and the Zionists outplaying the British in that game. It definitely is a very interesting perspective and way to frame it all. Um, I've got a question from Isabel Miller, which is um, very interesting. As I remember it, Professor Malcolm Yap used to say that there was more emigration from Palestine by Jews than immigration to Palestine. In other words, Jews who went there in the 20s and 30s didn't stay. Do you agree with this, disagree with this, have any insight on this? It's funny, I, I remember those arguments made more for the first couple waves of immigrants in the late 19th and early 20th century that were encouraged by the Palestine Jewish uh, Colonization Association of the Rothschilds and by the Montefiore philanthropic enterprise. And that there was a higher degree of outmigration just because the idealists of the Eastern European Zionist movement really didn't know what they were in for in Palestine and found it harder to make it work than they'd anticipated and lots of them left. Um, I don't know about out-migration in the 1920s, but certainly in the 1930s, there were reducing numbers of options open to European Jews facing what the more astute recognized was increasingly the existential threat, uh, threat of Nazi Germany. And so, you know, the kind of numbers we saw that turned immigration critical in the 1930s, particularly from Germany or territories near Germany where people feared for their future, was of uh, Jewish communities that were not subject to out-migration. Once they got to Palestine, uh, it was their safe haven and they become a core of the sort of new Yishuv that would be important for the developing of a military force under the Haganah and for creating a critical mass that would then go to work uh, in 1944-45 to try and change the demographic balance as the realities of the post-war world, including the, the, the Nazi murder of Europe's Jews through the Holocaust or the Shoah would be a, a key driver. We had um, some comments from Tony Greenstein who says that there was a financial collapse that contributed in the 20s to uh, many Jews leaving Palestine, um, which it's also an area that I'm, I don't know very much about. So, um, so that would be 
maybe in another webinar. <laughs> um, I've got a question from Professor Mahmoud Musa. Mm -hmm. Is it obvious that Arabs are victims? It, it is obvious that Arabs are victims of the empire, he says. Would you say that Israeli Jews are also victims? Well, I think in you know my telling of the story, there was a willful manipulation of the Zionists by the British and the British by the Zionists, both thinking that they were advancing their goals and ultimately it was the Zionists who won out. Had they been kept to a compact minority, a sort of despised agent of imperialism in an independent Palestine after 1949, had the 1939 white paper been realized, for instance, then one might have made the case that the British were exploiting the Zionists in a way which was harmful to their interests, you know, not letting them reach a critical mass, keeping them confined uh, to this partner status that left them exposed to attacks and hatred and whatnot by the surrounding Arab community in Palestine. Um, but, you know, as it turned out, the Yeshuv in the course of the revolt was very successful in making Britain's position in Palestine untenable and driving them out. So in my reading, I would say the Zionists prevailed over the British in securing their political ambitions. Um, following on from that, um, it's like we planned this, it's amazing. Christopher Ward says, many British serving, Palest uh, serving in Palestine found the Yeshuv quasi-communists. Didn't this affect British policy? It's a really interesting question because there certainly was as one strand of, uh, of Zionist thinking, a, a very strong socialist component. And if one looks at the debates in America, in Russia, Soviet Union, about uh, recognizing Israel's declaration of statehood, there, there really was a question of which way this, um, this new state would, would head. Would its socialist roots lead it more in line with the Soviet bloc or would its origins as a British colony, uh, uh, you know, incline it more towards a European and American model. So I, I think that was a question mark. But aside from the collective farming, um, you know, the, the Jewish middle class in Palestine was sufficiently um, assimilated to capitalist markets and whatnot to reassure the British that I don't think that they saw themselves establishing, if you were, the, the, the people's uh, Soviet uh, of Zionist Palestine. Um, it, it was clearly one of many ideological strands that shaped the politics of the Yeshuv. But, you know, it's important to say the Yeshuv was not a homogenous body. The, the Zionist executive was, you know, rife with debates among its members about their priorities and their politics. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's important to remember among those politics were very strong communist and socialist ideals, many of them coming from the Eastern European experience. Um, I've got a question from Mike Joseph, and I'm asking this question because again, it's a topic that came up a lot during our conference. So, um, and I thought it was a very interesting point. Uh, would you comment on Martin Gilbert lecturing 2011 and some of our speakers at our conference last week, the centerpiece of British policy that Britain would withhold representative institutions to Palestine for as long as there was an Arab majority. This argues that Britain explicitly intended a future Jewish majority with a democratic voice while ensuring native Palestinian societies would never obtain such a strong voice. 
Um, do you have any comments on that? Well, it's, it's a good complicating factor that I'm going to need to work into my parsimonious model because in talking about the idea of reaching parity, uh, in other words, where you'd have equal sized communities, it would suggest that the British were entertaining the idea of going beyond a compact minority of say 35%. But it might also reflect a British will to prevent having to go to representative institutions altogether because you could make that the condition for having a council and then never let the Jewish community reach the parity that would make it happen. So I'd be, I'd be keen to sort of look at that further and, uh, and thank you for the, for the comment. I can't believe how fast time has flown because I'm now gonna take the final question. I, apologies because we had so many, there was just no way I was going to get through all of the questions. I've tried to pick some from every topic and um, we're gonna to have to invite you back Eugene because um, there's just been so much engagement in the chat box. So um, thank you everyone for sending in your questions. Um, I picked this one, you'll see why. Uh, from Matthew Madane, again, I hope I pronounced that right. Histories of American foreign policy policy largely mentioned Palestine in the post-World War II era. Were the Americans largely supportive of Britain's imperial project in Palestine in the interwar period? Uh, now, Matthew Madain is no stranger to Oxford's Middle East Center. And indeed, to me, we worked together just last year while he was a master's student here. So excellent to have you with us, Matthew. Glad to be reaching from Oxford all the way to the west coast of the USA. And, um, and you've asked me a question I actually don't know the answer to. What a, what a sad way to end the presentation. I, I don't really know of America having taken an active position until you get to the UN commissions examining the plans for Palestine in 1946-47 and the Americans' role in that by which point I think the Americans are beginning to show some concerns for um, the, the partition plans that were put in place by the UN. And we know that the Americans tried to pursue a reversal of the partition uh, resolution of 29 November, 1947. But where the Americans were in the 1920s and 30s, I've just never read about. And it would seem to me uh, probably an area in which, because it's a colonial matter and sort of outside uh, of America's diplomacy was probably not looming large, but I, I, I don't know more about it than that, Matthew, and, and shame on you for putting me to shame with a question I couldn't answer. Well, Eugene, thank you so much. Um, I can tell you from the chat box, all the comments that are coming in, people have very much um, found your talk interesting. And like I said, there's hundreds more questions that we could do several more webinars on. Um, so I want to thank you very much on behalf of the Balfour Project and on behalf of all the participants and audience. I want to thank you as well for joining us today. The sun is out, so we appreciate that you've sacrificed some sunshine time. Um, the Balfour Project, I just want to say, um, our mission is acknowledging Britain's historic and continuing responsibilities to uphold equal rights for Israelis and Israeli and Palestinian peoples through popular education and advocacy, and to persuade the British government to recognize the state of Palestine alongside the state of Israel. Um, we do these talks approximately monthly, so please do make sure you're on our mailing list, that you check out our upcoming events. And um, most of our talks, our monthly webinar series anyways, is 
um, they're free. So we would very much appreciate any kind of donation in support of our work if you can. Um, I have posted the link several times in the chat box. So please do check it out. If you can give us anything um, to support our work, we would be very, very grateful. So again, thank you so much, Eugene. Um, and we'll wrap this up now, but thank you everyone for joining us and we will see you all at a future event. Thank you, Diana. And thanks to Vincent. Really great to have been with you. Thank you for the invitation. All right. Speak soon. Bye. <laughs>